Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Hey, everyone. Hello, and welcome to TwimmelFest. I am super excited to get this event kicked off with a live podcast interview with Shakir Mohammed, a researcher at Google DeepMind and a leader of Deep Learning in DABA, a nonprofit organization focused on strengthening machine learning and artificial intelligence in Africa. Thank you all for being here today for your amazing contributions to this event. And I hope you really enjoy Twimmelfest. And so with that, let's get started with our first keynote interview. All right, Shakir, welcome. Hello. So great to be here. How are you, Sam? It is great, great, great to have you here. I should say welcome to the Twimmel AI podcast. We are doing a live (laughs) podcast interview. So excited. I think this is such a great uh, a new page for Twimmel also to try this month-long festival. And um, I'm really very honored to be here and to meet everyone and to be finally in conversation with you. And so I'm looking forward to it as well. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, as is the tradition on the podcast, I'd like to get started by having you share a little bit about your background. Tell us how you came to work in AI. Yeah, I'll try and be brief. Um, I know we're going to talk about a lot of uh, different things. So I'm Shakir. I use the pronouns he or they, and I'm a researcher, an engineer. I like to think of myself as a writer. I'm definitely a reader, um, a community organizer, a follower, and a supporter of many different kinds of people. So I try to do all of these things to the extent that I can and um I began my journey, I'm South African. So I started um, in South Africa in Johannesburg, growing up in the South of Johannesburg. And I did my undergrad and a master's degree at the University of the Witwatersrand. I always say to people, actually, if you ever are looking to go and see a real life Wakanda, you should come to the campus of the University of the Witwatersrand and you will see sort of what a modern African city full of young people, tech savvy, uh, politically active, who know what they want looks like. So it's a great place if ever you are next visiting in South Africa once the uh, global order maybe perhaps returns. And then I was lucky enough to receive the Commonwealth Scholarship um, to go to the University of Cambridge where I did a PhD. PhD in machine learning. I focused on the topic of Bayesian statistics. And then from there, I just sort of followed um, the path. I did a postdoc. So I was lucky to get a fellowship from the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research. And then after that, there was a, a small little startup called DeepMind that was just about to hire some of their first researchers. And so I wrote an email. And then sort of eight years later, I'm still at DeepMind, loving it there, doing a lot of work in all areas of machine learning, from technical work in generative models to much more on the other end, socio-technical work of how society and technology interact with each other. And then along the way, um, sort of what we'll talk about a lot today was around the role that community has that Sam mentioned in your introduction. Um, And we created a new organization called the Deep Learning in Daba, sort of towards the end of 2016, the beginning of 2017, with a mission to strengthen machine learning in Africa. It began with an idea of starting in South Africa. And then we said, well, why are we having such limited ambition? And then grew from there. And um, today, the Indaba community is something I think to be very proud of. I'm amazed to keep learning from them, to be inspired by all the people who are there. And I think um, it's just sort of the beginning of that kind of uh, journey for us. Yeah, that's awesome. That's awesome. Has uh, has DeepMind changed a lot since the Google acquisition? I'm assuming you were there before Google. Every organization continues to change. And I think that's the sign of a good and healthy organization that you recognize that change is something that needs to happen, that it's great to go through acquisition to understand that due diligence when a team of 100 people can then grow and become a bigger team and how it is you need to change and grow into new things, prioritize, take on different projects. And I think for me, you know, if I project back, that has part of the reason why I'm 
been able to grow into so many different areas, to work in generative models, but to do things in reinforcement learning, to um, do work on post-colonial critical theories, to do a lot of work of diversity, um, to sit on the boards of our large uh, machine learning conferences. So I think that kind of change is normal and expected, and we should be concerned if there isn't, <laughs> isn't that kind of change. Mm -hmm. uh, so you mentioned some of the, the topics that you have focused on in your research and, and reinforcement learning is one of them. Uh, do you have any any favorite topics that you've researched? I have uh, favorites that uh, go through time. I have um, a sort of idea in my mind that I will shift the area that I work in every maybe three or four years. So what is considered my favorite will change. And I think it's good for us as scientists and researchers that um, you go back to a new phase where you are naive again, where you aren't an expert, where you don't know all the papers, where you don't take everything for granted. And um, then you see things afresh, you learn again, mm -hmm. that joy and excitement of being new, of asking silly questions comes back. But I obviously do have a, a, a favorite topic, which is um, an area of approximate Bayesian inference. I keep going back to it over and over. I often try to reconcile other methods of doing learning back into that framework. So I'll obviously often think about reinforcement learning as a process of doing approximate Bayesian inference or going to other methods of neuroscience and then to understand how it is that neuroscience is a way or an inspiration or maybe an instantiation of methods in approximate Bayesian inference. So it's, it's sort of where I consider my home. And I guess it's sort of because I did my PhD in that topic. And I think you never, you never really leave the topic of your PhD behind. It's sort of always with you, following you, even as you grow into many other kinds of topics. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you, uh, more recently, you've been you mentioned your uh, the paper that you did on decolonializing AI and incorporating in some of the social aspects into uh, your research. This is a paper that is on archive. Uh, you know, tell us about that paper and how it ties into your broader research interests. Yes, yeah, so um, I have many, many stories for the origin of that paper. So I have to always decide which one is randomly <laughs> going to get sampled as the origin story. Um, I'll, I'll give maybe two, uh, two, one, which is sort of goes back to my, the fact that I come from South Africa. In around 2015, 2016, there was a period in South Africa that we call the roads must fall period and, and sort of became a global movement. So many people do recognize it, which was this question around statues that are representing certain kinds of colonial values and how it is that we as a new country of South Africa that is moving forward to an inclusive space can still be celebrating um, you know, the arch creator and pr proprietor in some sense of the colonial project itself. And so there was a lot of conversation around that role. And so I then began already at that point to wonder to what extent is this conversation around colonialism and the post-colonial way of thinking and living and deciding um, sort of relevant to our own field of machine learning. And so, you know, that paper is so, in some sense is something that takes five years for me to have worked through. It's only 8,000 words in the end. So I think, you know, it's a, it's a story about <laughs> patience in research that, you know, you can take five years to write 8,000 8, words. But I think um, a part of that, the importance of that paper comes up to what you were saying in the beginning for most people that you meet in machine learning, those of us, we have given our careers, we are developing these kinds of technologies. You'll hear the line that you, that you used, um, which was the desire to use machine learning to enrich people and communities. And I think that's a very common line. It's a very optimistic line. It's a techno-futurist line. And I think it's a good, a good mission to have. And uh, the conclusion or the implication of having that kind of commitment to a technology of the future that is going to benefit people means that you are immediately tied to the technology we have today. The fact that we are living in the world today and today's present becomes tomorrow's future and that we came to today from a past. And so necessarily, if you are going to be committed to the technology of the future, you are yourself committed to how technology was used in the past. And so then you have to take seriously this idea that we can't be ahistorical in the way that we are thinking about machine learning. We can't, 
you know, ignore the fact and think that, oh, this kind of colonial history, which has shaped all of us, is something that's not relevant to the work that we are doing today because it's shaping our thinking. What I said to you when we had our pre-call, like we are speaking in English because of that consequence. The papers of science of machine learning is written in English because of that. And so much of that baggage of the past is still living with us today. And we just need to be careful that this kind of desire to enrich using machine learning in the future doesn't continue to perpetuate in unquestioned ways those things. And so that paper and that line of work is around providing those questions to look at the theory, to theorize about what it is we can do, and then to give some kind of ideas of, well, what does action look like when we move beyond the space of writing a paper, but into the world, the actual real world of actually doing things and what that action might look like. And in some sense, the creation of the deep learning in Dubai is one example of that kind of action that comes by taking those kind of um, alternative views. Yeah, you, you had a really interesting comment in our pre-call when we were talking about uh, this paper and the you know, distinction between research and uh, your, your research in particular and your work in the community. And you noted that for you, there's really no distinction between theorizing and action. They kind of have to go hand in hand. Uh, elaborate on that a little bit. Yeah, I, I many people ask, like, how do you compartmentalize? And, and for me, it is true that I don't see a distinction between the work of doing this theoretical work of decolonial AI, socio-technical research, and sort of how it is we do things in practice. So as organizers of communities, we can do many kinds of things, but I think we can be better if we rely on the fact that we are building on existing traditions, that there are sources of knowledge we can go back to, that we don't necessarily need to create everything from scratch. We can actually go back to an older way of doing, looking, decide for ourselves. So I see these two things as, as sort of fitting together. You know, there's a sort of a critique. We have lots of us being Twitter activists, but it's not enough to be an activist in the online world. You have to go and do that action in the offline world because that is where it matters. That is where you interact with people. That's where you see distress in the community. It is where you see that change needs to happen and where you see that actually what you imagined is the kind of change is actually very different from the actual change that needs to happen. And you can reconcile these two and you can also steer in different ways. I think... Um, you know, as we're looking to build confidence, build communities and build communities with confidence, these two elements of theory and action sort of must go hand in hand. They feed each other. And I think personally, I am enriched because I can do both of those things. I can jump between these two modes and test them, learn from them, see where they fail, see where the limitations are, see what else is needed, see how our actual context is maybe a little bit different than what we thought of. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when I think about the, this paper, uh, one of the first things that jumps out is kind of the relationship between it and the fields that we talk about frequently, ethics, bias, and fairness in AI. Decolonializing AI has a bit more of a poignant uh, ring to it. Can you maybe contextualize the relationship between these two ideas and, and why Assuming decolonialization and, and the ideas in that paper, you know, are talking fundamentally about ideas like fairness, why, why that specific uh, focus? So one of the important questions that decolonial thinking does, it asks you to consider what it is the space of change needs to be. So I'm not saying in any way that this decolonial theory is some superset of all theory. There are actually many theories we need to use together, along with ethical kinds of theories, other competing theories about what it means to be responsible in the world. You have other kinds of maybe other radical traditions. Um, you know, we can use many different kinds of knowledge, but I think the decolonial system asks us to look at machine learning specifically as a technical system that we can study and critique that, yes, there are questions of fairness and unfairness in machine learning algorithms. There are questions of the fact that it doesn't have correct recognition, that it undermines people of color when these systems are used. And that's sort of one important place to look at it. But the decolonial 
there, at the same time, is also saying that that looking only at the technical system is not enough. We have to also look at the fact that we are operating in systems of structures. So we are using sets of data. We are using systems and networks of people and infrastructure that we are operating at a global scale of different kinds of relations, of geopolitics, different kinds of ethical frameworks and charters, different kinds of governance and regulations that are speaking to each other. And that we, if we want to really analyze where that impact of machine learning and AI is, we need to look at both sides, both as machine learning and AI as the object, this technical object that itself may be flawed and that we can improve maybe through technical mechanisms, through other ways. But there's also this kind of structural element. And these two elements are themselves both speaking to community and to society that they are existing in and that society is feeding back into it. And if we want to look at all the key places of harm, of distress, of dispossession, of exploitation, then we need to look at both these levels. And I think the decolonial theory makes a very clear point of how to look at the system in general. And so there'll be certain kinds of things you'll be asked to do. One thing that's very common is that you'll be asked to look at metropoles, which are centers of power and peripheries, people who are the receiving end of our technologies, but also ask you to say that, well, these kind of systems and tools are being deployed in many different ways. They use in systems of authority, in geopolitics, in race and gender, in the way we are thinking about knowledge um, and the way we think about each other, which we call intersubjectivity or subjectivity. And so you have to study all of these different kinds of characteristics. I think it gives us a very rich, a very deep way of thinking about things and also then says, opens up a path to say, actually, you can learn a lot from the history that we have where all of these methods and existing technology was already deployed. And, you know, that desire to use technology to enrich was the mission of the colonial project. But who was it meant to enrich? Was not meant to enrich you and me, Sam, no. <laughs> All right, that was, that was not how that was working. So I think we have to ask those questions. If the decolonial theory goes back to, again, to that point that you mentioned. When we say we want to use de- machine learning and we have a desire to use machine learning to enrich people and communities, Who are those people? Who are those communities? Who has authority to say they can enrich? How it is that people are speaking? How is it that this has actually been done in the past with harm and how will we do it differently in the future? Mm. One of the ideas that came up in our earlier conversation was the idea of the, the scope of AI. And it really jumps out in, in talking with you about this decolonial theory that to create this, this vision of AI, of a future AI that is empowering as opposed to disempowering, uh, it really requires touching everything um, or, or at least quite a lot. So how do you think about the, the scope of, of AI, you know, in particular, but um, also in the context of the, this theory and this recent work of yours? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it's, it's true that today digital technologies more generally and AI is a part of that larger landscape is now touching almost everything we do. You know, Twimmelfest maybe is an example. It is born out of this idea that actually we can't meet each other physically. We can't travel anymore. We need new ways of connecting and organizing. And so this is, you know, very commonly, as everyone mentions, um, yet another example of how that scope of technical methods um, and digital technologies are expanding. So I think any technology we need to, I think it is important to have a a conversation about the role of scope, where things will be applied, where they won't be applied, in what situation it should be applied, what situation it can't be applied. And I think now we have actually many kinds of tools of scope which are coming up. They're coming up from so many different directions. Of course, uh, one important area is this kind of role of participatory research, which is now very central and important in all of machine learning. That is one very important way of scoping where things should be applied and in what sense there will be ownership of that scope. Who is deciding the scope of that? And then you see some very practical kinds of tools, the work of data sheets and model cards that come and say that actually you must know yourself as a researcher, as a scientist, what that scope is. So I think um, there is increasing scope. Machine learning has the potential to be used in so, so many different areas. We need to now 
actually to use those tools of participatory research, using those tools of knowing our own limitations, continuing to investigate, looking into the past to look to see how it is technologies have already been used and what the implications are so we can develop new kinds of foresight or prediction into the future of how those tools, and that will give us a way of demarcating what it is we consider in that kind of scope and what it is the effect of that scope or the externality in some sense is the one that we want to have based on the changes that will come from that. Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about how the the paper and the kind of the framework is is organized. How do you introduce this issue of decolonialization in the context uh, of AI and run through all of the, the folks and, and ways that it touches folks in the communities? Yeah, so... Um, Like I just said, the paper begins by saying that actually one of the things we need to do is expand the idea of what we are thinking of when we think of AI, that AI must both be this kind of object, this technical subject that we are always talking and dealing with that so much of my own research is in. At the same time, it also needs to be this kind of a subject itself, where we are looking at the structures, the systems, the kind of networks that are underplaying it. So with that idea of object, AI is an object and AI is a subject, you can now see that you need a very broad kind of tool with which to deal with that. And if AI, like you just said, in the scope of AI is going to touch so many things in the future, what we need and what we are missing is a tool of foresight into the future to understand how technology impacts the future. So then the paper begins to set up that actually there is a missing tool of foresight And how we can develop that missing or one missing tool is to use the advantage that we have of historical hindsight. And so necessarily then that makes the bridge towards this idea of a colonial history, which is shared between all of us. And then it actually unpacks this theory of colonialism. And actually today, because of how we live, we talk about a concept of coloniality, where coloniality is what survives colonialism. It's in the language that we speak, in the psychology of the way we approach things and what we consider valid knowledge versus invalid knowledge, how it is we relate to people and communities and people. And so then we put forward a set of five case studies where we see these use of AI has this flavor and element of coloniality, and we break it up into three areas of um, disempowerment or dispossession, exploitation, and then use different kind of case studies of beta testing, national policies and AI, ghost workers, um, international development as well. And then based on that, we can then put forward a set of uh, understanding where these sites of coloniality, where we see coloniality operating the way that we are explaining our own world, we can then look forward to, well, what are the kinds of things that that tells us to do? And one thing it asks us is maybe to reimagine how it is we are creating our field of AI into a slightly different field, a maybe more critical field that does this kind of middle ground of work. And then I think the key part of the paper is this idea of reverse tutelage, which says that actually for so much of the history that we have, freedom in that colonial era was taken or knowledge and lessons can be learned from those who were subjected. And they had a very powerful source of knowledge. So how is it that we as technical developers can create those systems of reverse tutelage where we learn from the communities of people who are actually using our tools? And then that's basically how uh, how everything comes together. Mm. Yeah, I'm curious in, in for, for this paper and for... You know, I've asked this question of folks doing work in various other aspects of AI ethics and and AI for good. Is the audience for this paper primarily folks that have already heard the gospel, so to speak? Or do you you feel that the, you know, this work and other similar work, you know, what ways are you making? Are you attempting to make the case or are you saying if you don't already understand the, you know, the evils of colonialism, then you're, you're not the person I'm talking to here? Yeah, I think this is such an interesting, um, interesting question because it's one I ask myself all the time. <laughs> so who is the audience? In some sense, um, I think we must recognize this every paper is written for a selfish reason. It is written because you, as the scientist, as the researcher, wants to write it, that there is a source of curiosity that you have, that you are developing and you are exploring. So maybe I'm going to start there to say that this is the paper that was written for me. 
It was written because of the paper that I wanted myself to see and couldn't find. And so then decided to, to write. And along the way, because, you know, I have two amazing co-authors in that paper, you do discover that there are actually other people who also are thinking like you and want to write that with you and want to explore. And, you know, as I said to you, this is five years of long work. There isn't necessarily a gospel I'm not saying that this is the answer. It is not the only answer. It's not the only way of thinking of things, but it is, I think, one very powerful way of thinking of it. And if we take it seriously, I think there are some really important lessons to learn. So, of course, the paper is very technical in some sense. It goes to a lot of theory. We've read so many books on these kind of things twice, three times to understand these (laughs) questions. So in some sense, um, you know, I think every piece of work cannot be communicated in one way only. So how it is you have to think about our own research and science is in a very long game of communication. But to start with that role of communicating to different audiences, to understand where people are in their own knowledge base, to see what kind of journey people need, you yourself need to be very confident in what your own argument is, where the basis of that knowledge is coming from, why it is certain things are connected in, the, in their own way. And so in some sense, to answer your question, this paper does that for us. It establishes that strong theoretical basis, a foundation upon which we can then go and ask other questions or speak to other people and not just those who are you know, involved in the gospel. I think there is very valid critique of the post-colonial and decolonial way of thinking. For example, the own the limitation that is in our own paper is that that analysis doesn't necessarily deal with any form of economic analysis and economic implications. And so much of our society and history is tied to that question. And so you do need something else. And so I, you know, that sort of um, who the audience is, I think, will change over time as I am changing over time. And um, as a short shout out, we wanted to try and do this other work um, by creating a sort of other community of a decolonial AI community. And we created a website called decolonialai.com. And on that website are going to, over a period of time, and with many different kinds of people and voices, write pieces of blogs or stories and essays and connect in different ways using poetry, using art, using experimental ways of writing, critiquing those kind of questions in different ways so that we can actually have that dialogue. And actually this role of dialogue is actually the central part of that paper. It says that the intercultural dialogue must be the basis upon which we reimagine our field and the way that we do a new kind of work. Mm. Uh, I wanted to ask a a question from the audience from Chris. He's wondering if you're working with any of the UN divisions uh, of AI for Good and the ITU in Geneva. It sounds like to him, some of the work you're doing is tied to things he's familiar with uh, coming out of those organizations. Yeah, I think... um... We sort of in the in the Indaba we have done a lot of work with the UN, with Global Pulse, with their UNESCO organizations. And I think um, you know, just to connect your point, yes, many of these organizations, we are all working together. And I think one of the sort of it's the hard work of doing community building is that you have to go and reach out to connect to all these different places, to find the places that we are connecting, that we can connect. And each of us have different kind of missions, so they are aligning in different ways. Um, So certainly all the AI for SDGs speak to this kind of question to some extent around what it means to be colonial. Yet it also offers a critique of that kind of approach to doing work because we have a lot of experience of doing work of ICT for development, for example, in the past and all the problems that come with going and doing development aid and work and, you know, parachute engineering and all these kind of questions that comes up. So um, I see them really as a, as a synergy of work for us to speak in different places, to learn at different ways. The UN has actually significant power because it is a convening power of countries at the national level. And we as a community, for example, in the Indaba are operating at the grassroots for individual people. So we do need to create those connections. Yet when we do our actual own work, they are operating and instantiating in very different ways because the people we are serving is uh, is a little bit different. But thank you. Yeah, a really great question. And, and um, continuing to do more work with organizations like the UN, like the WHO, like so many others. Yeah. Speaking of Indaba, I'd love to hear a little bit more about the kind of origin story of the Indaba. I've been wanting to make it to one of these events for a very long time. And, you know, it's always so amazing that 
you know, after one of the Indaba events, like the energy coming out of, I guess, Indaba Twitter or (laughs) Twitter, that community is just so, so powerful. I can only hope that at some point, you know, Twomo Fest, you know, will have that same kind of influence on people. Uh, It's just, you know, I always hear such amazing things. How did it all, how did it all get started? Yeah, it's um, like all origin stories, you have to always be suspect <laughs> of how the origin story is being told for, for that time. And um, But uh, I guess, you know, there are things that happen at points in time that are that sort of are meant to happen and that there are conversations in the air. So, um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'll just connect not just only to the deep learning in Daba, um, but also to so many other organizations like Black in AI, like Data Science Africa, for example. So I think all three of these organizations appeared and have their existence around the same time because all of us were somehow noticing something that was very absent that we couldn't quite put in words. Um, and, you know, for me, we were at our 2016 conference on uh, our, one of our largest ones, which is called the Neural Information Processing Systems Conference. Neurops um, in 2016 was in Barcelona that year. And we had already been speaking for a few months around maybe we should go back. We just wanted to start with a small idea of just going back to South Africa um, myself and a colleague, let's just go and give a series of lectures. We, you know, we know all these things. We are now established enough in our field. It would be great to go back and, and build on that. And then from that idea, of course, at that conference, we realized, well, actually, why are there no other South Africans in this conference? It's a bit strange. We only see each other. We've known each other for all these years. We don't know anyone else. Where are they all? And then we're like, well, actually, don't ask us South Africans. Uh, where are the Swazi people? Where are the people from Namibia? Where are all our neighbors from Zimbabwe? Where is everyone across our whole African continent? In some sense, there is um, the missing continent. And this is sort of what we wrote. Mm. We did a small analysis, thanks to the NeurIPS Foundation, who gave us some data. Can we just see where people were coming from over the last 10 years of NeurIPS? And then we wrote our first blog post, which was called The Missing Continents. And what that analysis showed, well, if you had to ask how many papers that NeurIPS had one author based on the African continent, the answer was uh, over the last 10 years or previous 10 years from that point, the answer was zero, which was a shocking state of affairs. And it was not much better in South America. It was around two, maybe five, I think. I don't remember the X. So there was quite a missing set. The continent was basically non-existent. It was not being asked for. What is the work that we should do? And so I think many different kinds of organizations then came up to react and to deal with, to address that kind of question and need. And we wanted to obviously go back to South Africa, back to our homeland, back to the continent, and then build a grassroots movement there with people there. And so then we basically built a collective of people who are abroad, who are in the diaspora, like myself and a few others, and people who are based in the continent themselves, And then wanted to use our different kinds of visions to come together to then build this kind of organization that would then have the mission. And that was the wording that then got created to strengthen machine learning and artificial intelligence in Africa. And what that would have meant would be that Africans would need to be owners and shapers of advanced technologies like AI, not simply recipients. So it was not enough that you know how to take TensorFlow and build a thing. Eventually, there needs to be a place where you can create your own TensorFlow in some sense. And so it began then, we were just going to do um, a summer school. So it began with this idea of a series of lectures with maybe 40 or 50 people to like, well, let's just, you know, widen it up, invite some people. It became 300 people. And then now, four years later, the Indaba has grown as an organization with several kinds of programs. The annual Indaba is just one of them. More important work is the work that we are doing supporting communities in countries, in individual countries across the continent, because they know themselves what it is they need, where they are, what their level of development is through a series of grants, through supporting recognition by a series of awards, the Kambule Award for doctoral theses and the Matai Award for uh, impact. And the idea was that we could create an engine of creating the annual Indaba that would create a kind of community where people knew each other, that would see each other, that would understand that they are not alone. This idea of the Indaba X is local communities that builds leadership, 
And then this idea of the awards that recognizes excellence and leadership. And once you recognize excellent leaders, you meet them at these, at these events. These events can sponsor and create new kinds of leaders, and you can create a machinery in some sense that would then lift the whole kind of community and our African AI uh, community together. So that was sort of basically, uh, in some sense, a bit of a story. Oh, that's that's amazing. Do you have the the most recent numbers for your benchmark, the number of papers in more recent NeurIPS that have been submitted by Africans? No, actually, I don't have it. So I will do, um, do a little uh, dig around now and ask again. I think now is a good time for us to see. And, you know, I think this work has been slow. There are several papers last year, group, and this year, I think um, two papers actually. So you'll at that particular conference, what I'd be interested was to look more at the larger kind of system. And I think also what's really powerful is that we now are, you know, you can see that organizations don't work alone, that actually different organizations start working with each other. So we have access of these people who are supporting on the continent, but we can work with Black in AI, who is running a workshop every year at NeurIPS and it creates the venue for people to want to support and want to present their work. So you have this natural funnel of people to then go and speak and present at those kind of conferences, which then gives visibility, gives them the opportunity to see, which then allows people papers to do. And then, you know, similarly with uh, Data Science Africa. And at the same time, you know, not to want to, to be careful, not to say that NeurIPS is not a standard somehow of what machine learning must be like, that only if you are publishing there, that would be sort of anti the vision and philosophy of the Indaba, that no, that is not a, a role of you know, self-confidence and self-ownership. That is mimicry. That is, in some sense, a colonizing mentality to go down with that theme. And so, you know, to balance that kind of trade-off that we want to have, you know, inclusion and participation at the international and the largest global forums, but we also at the same time want to continue to develop local ways of thinking, doing, organizing, um, grouping, publishing, experimenting. And you see that coming up with so many other groups in the way that they do their work. Um, and a shout out to a group who's doing this really well, which is called the Masakane NLP group, who does this kind of participatory work around natural languages for African languages in particular, by working with people all across the continents together to do that kind of work. And I think that's really, um, it's inspirational to see that. And I, you know, and it's, it's, uh, it's humbling to know that that idea came from those kinds of people having met each other the first time at one of the Indabas and then now in, sen- in some senses bigger than the Indaba is, <laughs> right? Because they have an impact in some sense, which is far what we, far outstripped what we could have imagined. That's, that's awesome. One of the things that you said that I thought was really interesting was that the goal for the Indaba, or one of the goals for the Indaba was to create a world in which Africans were making ML and AI, and not just the recipients of ML and AI. But to a large degree, I think part of what the opportunity is, is, or, or maybe the, you know, the, 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 what was actually happening was that Africans were not the recipients of ML and AI in ways that were meaningful to them until they could be part of the making. So these things are like intertwined yeah. and it's not necessarily one or, or the other. Yeah, I think that's uh, that is a very fair characterization of actually how modern science works. That it is so entangled in some sense, and I think um, because things are entangled, it's sometimes difficult for us to analyze what is going on. What are the mechanisms that are enabling some people to be successful and others not to be successful? What is the mechanism in this kind of global entanglement that means that some countries produce consistently amazing things and others are just somehow always not quite there, not in the conference, invisible in some sense? So I think you are right that there is this kind of feedback cycle um, that we can inject in some sense, but also, yeah, about this it, confidence that I mentioned that, you know, you need to have that confidence and know that you can do it um, and have a proving ground in which to try it and test it out. I agree. And I think the thing that I was trying to, to articulate is that there's something really special about communities like ours and like yours that are essentially enabling people to 
kind of scratch their own itch to like move forward locally or within a, a community that they relate to uh, that has, you know, ultimately that has a broader impact on kind of shaping this thing that, you know, we call AI that we're moving towards, right? Yeah, I think that's true. You can do what you can to enable people and from there what they do um, necessarily will be about things that matter to them, right? Yeah. And you can just create a platform upon which people connect with each other or build their confidence or learn a new tool, a new skill, or gain access to new kinds of funding or to be given a pathway to actually, you can present at these conferences, um, you can write this paper, you can actually go and speak to this person who you thought you could never speak to. You know, that's, that's all ultimately that we can do. And then the rest... Um, you know, people always do amazing things and the magic happens. Awesome. Awesome. So Chris has another question about potential. Does Indaba have sister organizations in Africa? Anyone that you can, I'm sorry, in India, uh, is there anyone that you might be able to point uh, him to or other developing regions with significant youth populations? Uh, and there's also a question about a Sheshi in Ghana uh, as a potential partner. Yeah, uh, I didn't have the time to actually go to Ashesi when I visited Ghana the last time, but uh, definitely um, we have people who we know there. Uh, what is Ashesi? Yeah, in Ashesi, which is uh, in, in, in Ghana. So we, they are definitely one of the many partners that are there. Actually, so this is an interesting story in itself. There are many kind of partner and sister organizations that are there now across the world that I've been really amazed by to see. And actually, the, the, uh, there is an organization in India this year, which was done by Google Research India, which this year for the first time, I've always been surprised. I didn't understand how it is that India is such a large country with so many people, was not already organizing and building these communities in these way already. So I was really excited this year to actually speak at their first event and to meet some of those um, People there, but over the years since um, the Indaba began, you now have organizations like this, our cousin organizations across the world. Another really one that started the year afterwards is uh, after the Indaba is called the Eastern European Machine Learning Community. And they're really an amazing group in some sense, just doing so many things. This year actually held their event virtually and um, amazing to bring the voice and that so much technical skill and talent in Eastern Europe. Then last year, for the first time, there was an event in South America, which is called Kipu, which was the, the same mission that um, the Latin American machine learning and AI community needs to be brought together that can unite. There's so much to speak to each other. They had their first event in Uruguay um, last year or two years ago the Southeast Asia machine learning community as well. Also a beautiful community. I also got to speak at the event this year. And so you see, what you see is communities across the world taking responsibility for their own development, their own trajectory, their own understanding, their own path, their own connectivity, and building those communities, using the resources that are available to them, speakers that they can get across the world at leading institutions who are leading the way, and then bringing that into their own conversation with their own cultural values, their own unique experience, and just doing amazing things. So you can see the world today is a much more global space of AI than it was five years ago because of the amazing work of all these communities in India, in South America, in Eastern Europe, in Southeast Asia, and more and more continuing to grow. Awesome. Awesome. A quick note for folks in the listening audience, we've got time for a few more questions if you'd like to chime in. Uh, I've been super curious and, and wanting to hear about Shakir's community building experience. We may need to do another show on approximate Bayesian inference and some of the technical things that he's been working on. But if you've got some specific questions there, feel free to toss them out. Um, a couple of questions, Miguel, uh, most immediately, and Chris kind of asked this uh, earlier about your the kind of support you get from DeepMind uh, as you work on some of these topics and how you kind of divide your time and efforts and, and those kinds of things. And maybe more broadly, uh, you know, if you're passionate about doing something community oriented and uh, how, how do you get your organization to buy into supporting that if that's something you've been able to do? Yeah, 
I think uh, at DeepMind and like so many of our organizations, there are people everywhere who are committed to their communities and to want to build and support them and to go back and build that more global voice of AI. So I've been very lucky that we are an organization that does recognize that kind of work, that sees it as very important, that understands that AI is ultimately something global and that needs to be owned by many people and that actually we can do so much more together with everyone understanding. So I've been very lucky um, and DeepMind, of course, has been one of our sponsors of the Indaba. I do make an important point that the Indaba is obviously not just me. There's a whole lot of people, amazing people behind it, and that it is run as an independent organization. Mm -hmm. And I think that independence of organizations like all these communities is really important to have because ultimately there are value systems or the needs of those communities, which will be different from a corporate identity or corporate needs. So, you know, I have been very lucky to be able to navigate that because I am in an organization that actually really supports me to do those kind of work, but still finding there are lots of weekends, you know, like anyone who's doing community organizing work, when your day job ends, you begin your second job as an organizer, you are sending emails, you are connecting people, you are searching to find people, you are looking at ways and strategizing about how you're going to fund your organization in the long run. You are thinking about the strategy, you are writing the annual report and document, you are thinking about your next phase of becoming a registered organization and a charity and all these kinds of work. So, you know, they are, it's not to say that this kind of work is easy to do because uh, like so many people, you have these kind of split personalities and it's just a matter of somehow somehow navigating it. But I think um, sort of Sam, what you mentioned in the beginning, there is there's this kind of a passion and that there is um, sort of an energy to do that kind of work because we feel it's so important, because our own history and experience of where we came from ourselves um, reminds us of you know, how lucky we are to be where we are and how we can give that gift back to other people that um, makes that community building worthwhile, brings in the fun that you spoke about in the opening. And, um, and you know, that's ultimately, I think, all we can ask for. Awesome. A question from Daryl. What do you see as the major obstacles to decolonialization of AI? Is it about access to, you know, equipment or, or data, uh, awareness, funding? Uh, I'm sure a bit of all of the above, but if you had to kind of parse through all that, what would you say? Yeah, so the core question for decolonial AI is to sort of, in some sense, unpack the systems of power that are at play in this world. And the systems and how those systems of power, but however we're going to think about power, there are so many different ways of thinking about power, how they are ultimately playing out when we do work. So let's think of it, it, it impacts us individually in the smallest way. What is it that we consider to be important work or important problems to work on. That in some sense is already a decolonial question because mm. there is an imagination in your mind as to what it is you will consider uh, important work. For many people, for us, we will use the term global, but you have to ask the question, who are people imagining when they say global? And I'll give you an example of a colleague of mine in South Africa. When their university administration says to them, oh, you should have international collaborations, International has a very defined and precise and colonial meaning. It means collaborations with people in North America and Europe. If that person should say, oh, I'm going to collaborate with my colleagues and partners at other African universities, that then is somehow considered, hmm, maybe you should be thinking a bit more strategically. So there are, so there are these kind of questions at the most basic level, but then there are questions at the kind of international level as well, a question that's sort of being posed right now when we have so many international organizations who is represented at those international organizations? So I'll give you an example here, which we use in the paper as well. There is the G8 summit last year. And there's one of these tracks, which is called the Osaka track, which is around international data flows and one of the agreements for international data flows. South Africa, India, Philippines, many countries refused to sign these international agreements. And the, the reason they cited was that those agreements were not in keeping or aligned with their own values and their own needs. So you see this kind of, the obstacles are everywhere. 
And the obstacle begins basically in our own kind of mind in one sense. And the other sense is the entire system is designed to advantage those who are already advantaged and not really give meaningful roles of decision-making, of change and participation. So, you know, uh, this is, you asked maybe the hardest question, um, you know, how it is that you can actually make that change. And ultimately, if we can just add a footnote in this literature, we can add a small pebble. I would consider that to be good work. But, you know, there are many people who are asking in that vigorous and debate around what it is, the kind of change that we want to see. And I think that's a really important debate for us to continue to have. Yeah, I, you know, I, uh, this this entire event, Tuomo Fest, in no small part, in large part, kind of grew out of the 2020 experience, right? And recognizing the importance of community and uh, the importance of collaboration. Uh, but I think there's also something really interesting to the 2020 experience that at least here in the U.S., but really globally, you know, as uh, traumatic and divisive certain elements of it has been, it, it has also been really powerful to see people kind of coming together to to speak up for, you know, those that don't have voices and whose voices aren't being heard. And, you know, whereas maybe in 2019, I, you know, look at decolonializing AI and think, wow, that's such a huge topic. How do you ever make any progress on that? Uh, maybe it's ironic that in 2020, I feel like, you know, there's, we can make, we can affect change, you know, on all of these issues because you see people coming, coming together globally to, to try to do that. Um, the whole movements for Black Lives Matter and for racial injustice globally that's affecting us in Britain. But as you know, this week, as many people have seen the work of police brutality in Nigeria or the work against gender based violence in Namibia, people recognize that they actually themselves have power and collectives can come together to ask and demand for change. And, um, and again, that's just the important reason for why to build communities of practice and of knowledge and of understanding together matters so much. Awesome. Well, Shakir, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us and share so much of what you're up to. Uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation and um, definitely serious about that follow on. <laughs> uh, thank you, Sam. It's just been amazing to speak to you. Um, I'm so grateful to everyone for their questions and for really piercing and deep questions who scratched and touched on exactly where the key points are. And, you know, I just look forward to continuing the conversation with everyone and to have that debate and to recognize that there are no answers, but together we can actually make steps and we can actually move between theory and action and, you know, speak to them together. So, yeah, uh, wonderful Tribal Fest. I'm looking forward to the rest of the month. Um, I hope, Sam, you will have some rest also at some point and look after yourself. And again, uh, you're pumped up. <laughs> Thanks so much. Awesome. Thanks, Shakir, and thanks everyone for joining us. Enjoy Twimmelfest and let us know how we can help and support you. Take care. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.